Welcome to Dead Folks Tales, a New Orleans-centric podcast exploring Southern Gothic stories, history, and hauntings with your host, paranormal and fantasy author, Nola Nash. Find out more at nolanash.com. Now, let's talk about dead people. Welcome to part two of our experience with the pharmacy museum and Cameron you in the first part you let us know a whole lot about what's in the museum and some interesting things about medical practice at the time now that was things that happened to living people <laughs> now we're going well I mean they're dead now but that was medical practice for the living we're going to keep you alive with that but there is so much to talk about with actual dead people and medicine. And I mean, there still is today, but we're going to talk about some things. Now, I've been on the ghost tours in New Orleans, and I know ghost tours are often a combination of rumor, legend, maybe a dash of history, <laughs> maybe not. Um, oftentimes, if you take tours multiple times, you'll hear a slightly different version of the same story, depending on who's telling it. It's kind of like the gossip game, you know, the telephone game, you know, by the time it's been told several times, it's been changed quite a bit. So the story that I heard was that the pharmacist that was there wanted to do, it was trying to learn how to do cesarean sections. And I mean, the story got into detail about finding women, whether they were enslaved women, whether they were just poor women who were pregnant, various stages of pregnancy, and basically kidnapping them and getting them up to the entresol, which is that middle, and we've not really talked about architecture as much in New Orleans. So you have the first floor, you have the, this middle kind of shorter story which serves as the attic because things get too hot if they're up in the, the top of a building in New Orleans. And then you have the second floor. So the entresol is in the middle there. And so he would bring them up there where he couldn't really be seen. And he would do all kinds of experiments. And most of them went horribly wrong and basically dumped the bodies with all the yellow fever victims in the swamps. That's the story I was told. I have a feeling <laughs> it's not entirely true. It's interesting. But it's not entirely true. So straighten us out. Yeah. So there's definitely, and something I, I do try to emphasize, people do come in all the time and they're like, well, where are the dead? Where, where were people murdered? Like, well, we don't have any proof that Dr. Joseph Dupas, um, who was the second owner of the museum, or second owner, when it was a pharmacy, uh, it was owned by Louis Dufio Jr. And then he sold it um, to move back to France to a Dr. Joseph Dupas, who is the person you'll hear talked about. Mm -hmm. um, some true things. Um, medical experimentation has often been done on the poor, the unconsenting, and the disadvantaged. Um, that has historically always been true. It mm -hmm. is horrible, it's awful, um, and to some extent greater or larger, it exists as a facet of medicine today, unfortunately. Um, but another true thing, we do have a trap door, uh, so that's cool. Yeah. Uh, they, people walk <laughs> there is that through the bodies to the trap door. Um, mm -hmm. What the uh, trap door in the entresol was probably actually used for um, is that it was a working pharmacy. And so in an effort to not have your groceries be delivered through your business, um, what would happen is like a carriage would come in through the carriageway full of groceries um, and it would sort of be 
carted up um, through the trap door to get to the second, third stories, which served as apartments. Um, that was probably what the trap door was used for. But the trap door is cool and you can mm -hmm. point to it, which is fun. Um, yeah. It is in the carriageway. You can um, right under it. <laughs> um, <laughs> there it is. It's, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, definitely encourage people to look for it. Now, in um, the legend, that's where, it, it, you know, when, when it went wrong, <laughs> he lost the patient. Basically, there was a carriage waiting underneath that trap door and the bodies just kind of, he brought them in and out that way, yes. was the legend. That's what so I've heard. Um, it wasn't really bodies. It was more groceries. <laughs> yeah. We don't really have okay. proof that like any of that actually happened. Um, but what we do know, and my personal pet theory, is that one of the most like the most documented case of sort of medical malpractice, medical experimentation, especially on slaves um, that we have uh, in the South from this period uh, is the the acts of J. Marion Sims. J. Marion Sims was experimenting on predominantly pregnant or postpartum women. Um, he wasn't actually trying to perform C-sections, although he did help uh produce the C-section. He, he did help bring the C-section to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, he was trying to correct a, something called a vestereo vaginal fistula, which occurs after birth. It's where mm -hmm. sort of um, the baby's too big uh, or whatever, and you get like this fissure that doesn't cure, that doesn't heal. Um, it doesn't heal properly. Um, it's very dangerous. And a lot of women died from it. And so he was trying to cure that. Um, and in order to cure it, what he would do um, is he would ask slave owners, uh, he'd be like, hey, uh, let me sort of borrow the slave woman you have that have this um, and I'll take care of them, I'll feed them, I'll, I'll house them, I'll clothe them, whatever. You just, you don't have to pay me anything. I just get free reign to do whatever I want, provided I don't intentionally kill them. <laughs> um, and so he performed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these experiments. Um, for one woman, there's a documented case and he recorded them. That's why we have so much evidence of it. You can read his diaries. Um, he performed the same surgery to attempt to correct this vestigial fistula on this woman 20 times in one day. What? All without anesthesia. Um, oh my God. He didn't believe that, well, there was a longstanding idea that, that, that people of color, black people specifically, did not feel pain the way white people did. Um, wow. He also apparently did not think that pregnancy or vestigial fistulas at all hurt enough. Like he's documented saying he didn't think it hurt enough to go through the surgery that it warranted anesthesia. Although interestingly enough, when he perfected the procedure, he would use anesthesia on the white women um, who he performed the surgery on. Um, so maybe there was a bit of, you know, he, he might've had some ideas that were not um, he also uh, performed a ton of experimentation on children. Um, when children are born, when your baby is, if you have a baby and your baby's born, your baby will actually have more bones in their head um, than an average like adult human because those bones will fuse together. That's why you have a soft spot on your baby's head. Sometimes if the mother is malnourished, the two bones will sort of overlap each other and they won't fuse properly. Um, and this happened a lot in plantations um, because mm -hmm. obviously these people were being horrendously treated. Right. Um, they were not being fed enough often. They were, were malnourished. And so he would try to correct that on children um, by literally just taking like a hammer and trying to like hammer the bone plate um, back into place. So like if the bone is here, oh he would try to take a hammer and like flatten it out those experiments had a 100% fatality rate. And we know that that yeah. occurred. Um, and so when people come to the museum and they're like, well, what did Dr. Jo Joseph Dupas do? I'm like, there is a, a very important talk about the history of medical malpractice, the history of terrible things that have been done to people in the name of medicine historically. Um, that's just not a story 
that is for here. Um, it is it, it, that story belongs to a different person. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's important to sort of talk about that because mm -hmm. there was a person. His name is J. Marion Sims, and he did those things. Right. Joseph Dupont didn't, at least according to what we know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give the man a little credit. <laughs> so because of the stories, of course, you know, they're telling you these stories about these horrible things because they're saying that the building is haunted. Now, every building in New Orleans, I would, I would venture, is haunted. I mean, I've spent enough time down there, lived down there. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of, it goes with it. I can see why people would say that about the Pharmacy Museum, given the fact that it is so full of such creepy things to us that were standard medical procedure back then. But the architecture itself kind of lends to that a little bit too, because, you know, you have this staircase. <laughs> I mean, this is the coolest staircase. You, this is actually taken from kind of back, it's outside. It's You had gone through this, this door under this staircase is where the main, that room is that had all the bottles in it that I showed on the episode one of this. And you walk out of here and as you're walking up these stairs, I love that in the middle, in the top right up there with the bars on it and the glass, you can actually see into the entresol. I mean, I love that you can see into it. And if you've been on the ghost tour, then you're looking for something truly creepy, but it's storage. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's there, you can see it. Um, but that staircase is just such a cool walk up to the second floor exhibits too. And you don't want to miss that at all. Um, and this is back in here in this, you can't see it kind of in the rafters in there. Um, this is the archway that would have been the carriage, the carriageway there. And in those rafters is kind of where you see where the, the trap door was. And there's just really cool architectural features about the pharmacy museum and the building itself. And so much of that, I think, lends itself to the stories that you hear. So, you know, you have it's going to come with any New Orleans property, <laughs> but given what the building was for and the medical practice at the time, yeah, <laughs> you can see okay. why people would say that building is haunted. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I didn't experience anything there. I don't know, but there are plenty of people who will talk about that being one of the creepiest places they've ever been, whether it's from something that they have experienced paranormally or just simply getting the willies, looking at some of those things that passed as medical <laughs> equipment. Oh yeah, I, I work there, I, I'm there multiple times a week, uh, but I also close and I open and close um, sometimes alone. And no matter how, like, I have a very strong policy that ghosts aren't real unless they are, in which case I'm wrong. Um, and so when I'm closing, um, and probably my boss can tell you this is very odd because she's heard me, uh, when I open, I say hello. When I close, I say goodbye. Um, I'm like, look, if, if you y'all be good to me, I'll be good to you. Mm -hmm. If you're not here and I'm talking to air, no harm done. That's um, right. <laughs> very cool. Error on this side of caution. <laughs> oh it does not matter how cool you are, you are about it. Um, I've been in there at like 10 or like seven, like later at night when it's dark outside. Um, you feel something. It's scary. <laughs> um, even if you've been there a hundred times, even if you've walked up the stairs a hundred times, twice a day, three times a day, it's it can be creepy. So I definitely understand. Uh, and, and we know that people have died there. We know um, at least two of, of Louis Dufio Jr.'s children died there. Mm -hmm. um, 
and we know that when it was a surgical practice, people they died. His children died of yellow fever, didn't they? Or one of his I, children did, I believe. I believe so. I would have to check. Uh, I haven't actually. I we haven't. Oh, I, but I, haven't. I, I remember reading a story. Maybe maybe my history is off, but I remember reading something about one of his children having yellow fever, and you know he was helping to tend people during a yellow fever epidemic, and it was like soul crushing to him that he couldn't save his own child. Oh, and I, I mean, just what a heartbreaking story. So when you, you know, talking about the children who died there, I mean, I can imagine I mean, even that would be kind of like, maybe it's one of the children or, you know, it's, I could, I could see that they would stick around, maybe didn't want to leave dad or, you know, stay because dad was upset that he couldn't help them. You know, think about reasons ghosts might hang around. That'd be a good one. Oh yeah. I keep going. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was just gonna say, like, it's definitely like, we know people died there. We know that it's, it's a place with a lot of energy. It's a place with a lot of history. Um, and I, I have this very, uh, people come and ask, like, have you ever, have you ever experienced, like, have you ever seen ghosts? And I'm like, well, no, but it is an old building and it makes noises. Um, and also I'm very forgetful. So sometimes I'll be like cleaning and I, I'll definitely like open a drawer and then I'll leave and then I'll come back and I'll be like, oh, <laughs> the drawer is open. Um, and how much of it is like ghosts and dreams and how much like, I I'm just the most forgetful person on earth. I don't know. Um, but it's definitely like a comforting thought that like, it's almost comforting to think of like these, this is a place with history and that history lives mm -hmm. in the walls. If it's in the form of ghosts or in the form of just the building itself. Mm -hmm. It is one of those places that if these walls could talk, you know, <laughs> amazing stories, you know, fascinating, horrifying, you know, and everything in between kinds of stories that it would tell. Now, we were talking kind of on our, in the break and between the two episodes here about cadavers and the use of cadavers in medical practice. You've got a really cool book. Yes. So it's one of my actually got two books that are really fascinating. Yes. So, so I have two little books um, that jumpstarted my interest in medical history. Um, we we sell a few books at the museum. Unfortunately, not these two. Um, we do sell this one called Quackery, which I definitely encourage people to pick up because it's about um, sort of the worst ways to cure everything, um, which is very <laughs> funny. It's a very funny, jovial written book. But my favorite books... Um, there's this one, Stiff by Mary Roach. You can tell I've read it hundreds of times because it's all well, gross. Um, and there's How to Be Victorian, um, which is a dawn to dust guide to Victorian life. Um, but Stiff, uh, specifically, Mary Roach uh, is really good as an author in terms of discussing um, how cadavers are used today uh, and why, for example, one might need a, a, a body plan, um, which everyone should have a body plan for themselves um, for when they pass. Mm -hmm. I have one, certainly. I'm very young, but I have a body plan. Um, and like how cadavers have been used historically, because um, when you think about the history of, of sort of dissections, um, it, it has been something that was very illegal for a very long period of time. And so what you you get is the rise of this sort of gravedigger job um, who gravediggers would often sort of moonlight once they dug the graves at the end of the night, they would dig them back up and go sell them um, to medical practitioners, mainly because like the gruesome truth is that like medical students have always needed bodies to practice mm -hmm. on. Um, in order to cure the living, you need to sort of get in there um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, know what a heart looks like up close and personal. It can't be a pig heart. It has to be a human heart. Um, so you get this sort of rise of especially the poor um, people who died and were buried in pauper burials, people unnamed were being taken out of their graves and sold 
for pretty considerable sums. If they were good enough bodies, you could get, you know, 10 shillings in, in, in Britain for them. That's a considerable sum um, for this, for the period. And mm -hmm. you could sell them and they would sort of disappear. And, and the, the medical practitioner, the doctor, um, you would have, uh, you know, operating rooms where you would have operating theaters is what they're called more aptly. Um, because you have hundreds of medical students sort of just staring at one body. Um, and it, this is actually something that I actually read a news report the other day um, that for whatever reason, the the body industry in the United States is not the most well-regulated. So definitely check on it if you have a body plan to donate your body. Um, because uh, recently a person who had died of COVID was sold to a uh, an industry that said they were going to use it for medical examination and and public autopsy, um, like in the context of medical students. But what ended up happening is they ended up selling tickets to an autopsy of this person um, as oh sort of a freak show situation, and um, that was illegal. But it's not like the the medical industry, Ooh. the body industry, is something not a lot of people want to talk about. So mm -hmm. these are things that have ended <laughs> certainly. Um, yeah. These are things that still go on today. It um, reminds me of the beginning of Young Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because then it, it starts with him in there and one of the students standing up and saying, Dr. Frankenstein, he's like, I'm not Frankenstein, it's Frankenstein. <laughs> I mean, he goes the whole thing. But it starts with one of those. And yes. that's kind of where he goes to, off to do, you know, creating the monster is it's the whole it's the it's the the theater with, you know, the autopsy theater. Um, um, that, and, that is probably not an accurate depiction of autopsy theaters, but you know, um, I mean, Gene Wilder they, is good. They, they were that. Um, there's this really lovely uh, book you can pick up at um, a very local store called um, Dark Matter. It is our, uh, they, they do they do our art for a lot of the stuff at the Farms Museum. Hmm. Um, but Dark Matter has a book on, uh, it's a collection of uh, historical pictures of people with bodies. Um, nowadays, if you take a cadaver class, which every medical student has to. Um, there is, they have burial ceremonies every year. They're always very respectful. Like they, there's a huge push that these are like, these were people, they are people oh, just because oh, their soul nice. is vacated that they'll, they'll often have ceremonies. Um, you're not told the real name of the person when you're given a body. Oh, that's um, good. But often um, it's very common practice for the person because you work on one body the entire semester that's how cadaver labs are set up is you you get one body at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year you finish dissecting it um and often people do form sort of an emotional attachment and they end up like naming it um and so but in the past it was very common you find pictures of people just like messing with bodies taking skulls home in bags um oh just to have um like just taking whatever they wanted treating bodies horribly so so it's definitely something that like it's it's super interesting and i don't know that we're gonna have enough time to talk about all of it but i <laughs> think a little over <laughs> amazing it's something that you start looking into it and you just can't stop uh it it, it bleeds into the rise of serial killers aj holmes um the world's uh, first or america's first real serial killer mm -hmm. um he what he did is he would kill people take their insurance um he would take out an insurance policy on them kill them take the insurance money and then sell their body to um to to doctors who were unscrupulous about where this super fresh young body came from because <laughs> young bodies were in short supply mm -hmm. um and so you you read about these things and it's definitely it's interesting how how common it was to just treat bodies sort of with a lack of respect um, mm -hmm. and just use them as sort of this public display and, and have this sort of system of just experimenting on them and um, talking about them as if they weren't real living people, not 
30, 40 minutes ago, because in, in yeah. the recurring period, of course, they didn't have like the embalming stuff that we have. Right. Um, they were working on fresh bodies. Uh, they, they had to be. Which didn't stay fresh very long. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, if you think about just the conditions that they were working. I mean, this was a body too, that most likely had gone through the process of awake, especially, you know, with yellow fever, kind of putting people, the yellow fever could put people into a coma, basically, and they didn't always die. They seemed dead. We didn't have quite the fail safes and figuring out if people were alive or dead. So the wake was the practice of kind of giving them a couple of days to come to if they were going to. So not only had this body been basically sitting out for three days, then it's been buried, then it's been dug up. I mean, it's already several days gone before it gets to somebody who's going to be working on it. And just what they're actually being given is, is, horrific in itself. I mean, we've, we've all seen, you know, murder shows and, you know, everybody's got, you know, their true crime shows and things. And, you know, they look at how long, how decomposed the body is to determine how many days it's been there. So we're looking at some pretty horrible things yeah. that they um, were working on. That's why on. like the fresh bodies that HH Holmes could provided were such in like, they were so desired um, because Part of it, sometimes you could get legal bodies um, if they were criminals. If you were criminals mm -hmm. and it's death, you were hung and then sort of your body was immediately sold. You had no rights to your body anymore. Um, and so the problem with that is there weren't enough criminals in London um, and in France and, and places where this was legal. Um, there weren't enough criminals that you could kill um, and and give those to, to hospitals. So it was all this like scramble between doctors at, at different universities to like get the freshest bodies, um, yeah. which created this system of like, the quicker you could, if you could steal a body from a wake and you could get away with it, the fresher it was, the more you get paid for it. And that was just sort of this, it created this very early system of disrespect that continued. Body snatchers. So I guess that's where body snatchers originally, you know, the term body snatchers comes from. It's probably <laughs> yeah. something like that. I mean, it didn't have anything to do with, you know, possessing someone's body. It was just take the body. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's kidnapping bodies. I mean, I guess, you know, they don't consider it kidnapping if the soul has gone, but it's still just yeah, it's a, stealing it's a, a body. It's a very gruesome system. Um, and I definitely encourage people to look into like their death plan. Um, nowadays, if people ask me at the museum, I'm like, you need to have a death plan. Um, you need to talk about where your body's going to go uh, when you die. Um, because I plan to donate my body to a body farm. Um, mm -hmm. But you have to like make sure that's a planned in advance. <laughs> mm -hmm, you do. And an interesting thing about in donating your body to science or to a body farm. And for those who don't know what a body farm is, that's where um, forensic specialists, police officers, place, you know, people in that field learn on bodies, basically stages of decomposition and what certain weapons do to a body and, you know, things like that. Um, in a different way than medical science, they are looking at forensics with bodies and means of death. So you also have to have medical records. So, you know, you, if you've got frequent checkups and you have a medical history that's current, then, you know, that's one of the conditions for donating your body to science or donating your body to a medical, to a body farm, because they need to know that whatever they are looking at is a result of a particular thing, not some random ailment that you had and you didn't report. <laughs> so that wasn't in your medical history. So then, you know, they're not chasing, you know, they're not going down rabbit trails. So it's an interesting 
thing. And maybe people don't realize that they can donate. I mean, we all know we can donate our organs. You know, you put that, you know, whether you're an organ donor, you put that on your driver's license, whatever. But I don't know that people really necessarily think about, you know, we think, are we going to be buried or cremated? And that seems to be the two things, you know, but you can donate your body and to there's, science. There's you so many more beautiful options these days. Um, Cosio, the brand Cosio makes um, a mushroom suit, uh, which they put your body inside of a mushroom, a suit filled with fungal spores um, and then plant a seed above your body um, so that eventually you'll, your body will nourish a forest. Um, mm. There's, it's actually cheaper, fun fact, cheaper to cremate your body and send the ashes into space than it is to get a traditional burial. Um, you can have your ashes cool. made into diamonds. Um, That's cool. Um, you can, you know, body farms. The one thing about that, however, is I definitely encourage people to like look at where they're donating their body because a lot of people mm -hmm. will just like check the box and be like, well, I'm sure it'll go somewhere ethical. Um, the U.S. military, fun fact, buys a lot of bodies um, because what Do happens they? if you donate your body to science is um, you actually sort of, you donate your body to a company that is for profit and then they sell it to whoever... Um, they want to sell it to. And you can designate, like, I specifically want my body to go here. That's why I encourage people to, like, look up, like, universities that you're like, I specifically want my body to go to this university. I specifically want it to go here for this purpose. Um, now, you're at Tulane, right? You're a grad student Tulane. at Tulane. <laughs> and we've got Vanderbilt here, which is also, you know, research-based. So we've got the heavy medical program at Tulane. We've got Vanderbilt here. You could say, I want my body to go to Tulane. Yes. Or I want my body to go to Vanderbilt because that's who we want to have access to the body that they need for their medical students. So we, we could specify that. Is that correct? Yes. You can you can go in and you can um, go through their program, get someone on the phone and be like, I, how do I get my body to you? Because I want y'all to have it. Um, there have been cases where like at least one elderly woman, I think it was in 2010, um, she had Alzheimer's. She desperately wanted doctors to have access to her brain um, in order to like study Alzheimer's to potentially find a cure. Um, and what ended up happening because she wasn't careful about like how she went about it um, is the U.S. military purchased her body and used it for bomb testing just to oh, see God. how bombs would interact on a human body, which is something that is necessary. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, a waste of a brain that had Alzheimer's that could have yeah, been Yeah, it's a very necessary test that somebody needs to be donating their body mm -hmm. to do. Um, but she had a very specific reason, and it wasn't honored. Um, and so you got to be very careful about, like, how, where you donate your body. But definitely, it's it was super important for just, mm -hmm. it's just like the medicine that you go to take care of your body now. Take care of where your body's going in the future. <laughs> yep. And that's something, you know, we, we don't give maybe as much thought to it as we as we want to, or, you know, as, maybe we don't like the thought of, you know, deciding what's going to happen to us at the end, but it is something necessary. And if you can put all of those pieces in place, then maybe somebody else is not dealing with the struggle of this, you know, grandma didn't go where grandma wanted to go. And, you know, then that's kind of a, a guilt trip thing you live with for the rest of your life. Um, I mean, I always said I wanted to be cremated and I wanted I wanted my ashes to be scattered in New Orleans because I love New Orleans so much. And I wanted it at the the Washington Street trolley stop, streetcar stop, trolleys for those of you who are not in New Orleans. And a little bit there and the rest of it in Lafayette Cemetery because it's like the Washington Street stop is the one you get off to go. <laughs> and it's like, but the streetcar is going. I thought that's how you stay connected to the living. And then you go hang out with the really cool dead. <laughs> and so that, that it was like, that was my plan. It was like, put me on the, on the streetcar line so that I can continue to have that 
connection to the living, going, doing, excited about things, you know, going about their lives. But then I have that community of dead, which That's a very beautiful plan. Um, I love Lafayette Cemetery and I, I, I do not have a family plot. You know, I, I don't have my own, <laughs> my own above ground tomb there, but if you can sprinkle me around, <laughs> that'll work. <laughs> the only thing I say don't ever do, um, if you're, if your deceased uh, relative says, I want my ashes scattered at Disney World, don't do it. Uh, they're not going to be there long. Tons of people do it every year. And, and you can read your report. Um, they literally just sweep them up immediately. Mm -hmm. They close the ride. Tons of people. The, the main offenders are It's a Small World and um, the Haunted Mansion ride. Tons of people want to see the Haunted, Mansion, the Haunted ride. Mansion ride. Um, and literally the only thing that will happen is you'll scatter ashes there. Um, it is a biological hazard. They will close down the ride and just sweep them up and put them in the trash. Don't do Don't that. Do that. Anything else? <laughs> the world, like you have so many options. Um, mm -hmm. Do whatever you want. Just like make sure that you're, you have a plan in place um, because pharmacy can only get you so far. It can only keep you living for so long and you need, mm -hmm. you need to know where your body's going. <laughs> Absolutely. So we have a long history of medical study, medical practice, medical malpractice, yes. all of those things that are all wrapped up in the pharmacy museum right there in the French Quarter with Cameron and some other docents who are there to answer your questions, take you on tours, and show you all of the really cool, fascinating, and creepy things that are housed there. And, you know, it is the stuff that nightmares are made of in many ways. But at the same time, it is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating and a great way to see how far medical science has come. And to me, seeing how far medical science has come in that amount of time and how quickly we are making advancements gives me hope for some of the things like Alzheimer's. My father had Alzheimer's. And, you know, it's things like that that we hopefully we can we can tackle those big problems and maybe there there is something around the corner we are making great strides we are certainly not bleeding and leeching people anymore and giving them alcohol and laudanum but you know now we've got so many other advancements not only for the living but also for when we have passed on and those plans where our bodies can actually serve to advance those causes and things that we're hoping to find cures for. So Cameron, it has been an absolute joy having you on here. You are a wealth of knowledge and your enthusiasm for what you do and the study of all of this is just amazing. And I, I just, I'm so glad that you were able to come on this show today. It has been fascinating and fun all at the same time. Who, who knew talking about corpses and weird medicine? It's going to be so much fun. But, thing to do. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, I have a whole show called Dead Folks Tales. I talk about dead people all the time. And I love it. Thank you so much for joining me, Cameron. This was absolutely amazing. And you're welcome back anytime. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I loved it. Thank you so much for inviting me. You are most welcome. Thank you for a part one and two episode of Dead Folks Tales. And we will see you guys next time. Dead Folks Tales is a copywritten podcast of authors on the air, Global Radio Network. Special thanks to producer Roman Surratton and executive producer Pam Stack. Join us next week for another episode of Dead Folks Tales. Thank you.